you're fed up with the nine to five, you've been working hard for years, and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career, but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. Hello, this is the Business Breaks podcast, and today's episode will be about clash of cultures. Now, where this topic came from was us bringing up the acquisition by Elon Musk of Twitter and how suddenly a whole raft of employees from Twitter left because Elon and I guess the existing corporate culture within Twitter didn't blend well. Obviously, Elon is now the owner, so what he says goes. And what went was also a number of people who were dissatisfied with the change. Now, culture has to be very much a part of that change conversation because it's not very easy to change a culture. And I've experienced transformations where to build a new culture, it's, it involves a lot of planning, a lot of time having conversations about why the change was needed, why the mindsets need to change. And that took I was fortunate enough that that was a very well-organized transformation in terms of the way HR implemented that culture change. What it did eventually lead me to conclude was that, in my example, it was relatively painless, but at the same time, there were certain levels or leadership that were too close to me to make me think that this was more cosmetic than actually a fundamental mindset shift. It was basically, here's the latest buzzwords. You use this language because that's what all the executives are using now and not really changing the way things are done. So there is that element to it. But in regard to what happened when two corporate cultures merge, there's always going to be a massive upheaval. And I guess our discussion will be around where do we see things working well? I mean, the easier part is where doesn't it work well? So I guess, John, if you'd like to share your thoughts on clashing cultures. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, in a lot of businesses, it tends to be lip service almost as paid to the customer when they're looking at a merger or an acquisition. It's it's almost always, certainly on a large scale, tends to be built on looking at the assets of the businesses and seeing can you make. It's all financial driven, you know, do they, they look at things outside the business like, you know, do, does the customer base of the other company match with ours? Does it, you know, expand ours? You know, does it work well? Can we sell our products to that customer base? If we merge them and vice versa with the financials, the assets, all, all the rest of it. And even then the staff, you're kind of looking well, we could financial departments, the admin department, things like that. We can downscale. You don't need two full ones. You know, we can, we can bring it in and say savings there, things like that. But they don't tend to, you know, like you said, it's kind of superficial almost the cultural part that they look at. They, they probably don't even look at the culture until after they decided to make the acquisition or, or the merger. And then they will decide, okay, now let's do something cosmetic to fix the culture. And yeah, I think the culture is probably the most important thing that if, if the two companies do not have the same or similar cultures, no two companies will have the exact same culture, but you know, if they haven't got similar cultures, it's going to be a very difficult job. And I'm not saying never merge or acquire a company if the cultures are vastly different, but take it into account and realize that it's not going to be plain sailing. It's going to be a heck of a lot more difficult to do it. As you said, what brought her up was when we mentioned the Twitter and Elon Musk. If that's coming up again, I'll point out now 
what I will probably end up doing so that people who are listening don't think that I don't understand the difference between Elon Musk and Tesla. I will probably use Elon Musk and Tesla interchangeably. I know Tesla did not buy Twitter, but from a cultural point of view, I think Tesla is a very good proxy for Elon Musk. What type of culture does Elon Musk bring to it? As the sole owner, he is an entity in and of itself. His culture and the Twitter culture are, are at odds and you're seeing the, almost the, the, the classic example of what happens in that situation. But if you kind of want to see, well, what is Elon Musk's culture like, then you just look to Tesla because that's his company from the beginning, pretty much. So, so it is his culture. That's how he thinks a business should run. So, you know, when we're doing comparisons, if we are comparing Twitter to Tesla, we, we fully understand, just to let the listeners know, we fully understand that Tesla did not buy Twitter, but we're using Tesla as a proxy for Elon Musk because the obvious, most visual, most public version of what Elon Musk's culture is like is Tesla. Now, that's not to say he might, he may be able to turn things around and make a business success out of Twitter, but you're seeing that problem now because the cultures are just completely opposed to each other. The Twitter culture and the Tesla, the, the Elon Musk culture. And it's, it's an extreme example, but it is, you know, where people just did not pay attention at all to culture while make, when making the business decision. And it's good to, that you mentioned the hard-nosed business decision because businesses are about making money. And Twitter made a bit of money in 2018, 2019 in terms of net profit, but 2020, 2021, and yeah, now I don't know what 2022 will transpire, but I imagine, especially with the disruption and the negative opinion and advertisers and sponsors actually pulling out for various reasons, that they are probably not making great profits right now this year. It was interesting. I listened to a recording of Elon talking to various people on Twitter Spaces. Now, this is good because I remember there was a big hoo-ha in 2020 about Elon going on Clubhouse. And Twitter Spaces is their equivalent where you have audio-only rooms with live engagement conversations. And he was talking about a number of things relating to Twitter and some of it coming back to the hard-nosed business decisions. He was talking about the reversing the cash burn because I think they have limited runway, something like four months or something like that. Then also saying some interesting things about how they needed to re-engineer their, um, their servers because they've got partial servers on cloud and some of them on-premise. The cloud stuff is doing things like impression data storing impression data and recording it. The on-prem is recording likes. And those are two very identical sets of, or common sets of, shall we say, posting statistics. And he didn't understand why they were separate, which is funny. And also he said just that the way that Twitter works is very convoluted in terms of their architecture now with organizations and how they build up a lot of legacy systems that just organically grow Twitter's ecosystem and its um, its whole architecture was developed internally over decades. And I think Elon got the impression that he, he was thinking, well, let's just make it open source. Let's put it out there and see, I guess, if anyone can actually improve upon it or even just look at it and say, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong or something like that. And there were some Twitter engineers who were, actually arguing, well, I don't think it's going to help because when you do open source, you're not actually controlling anything. Elon was saying, well, looking at it, it's a mess and, I, uh, and you know, trying to do certain things, it impacts 17 variables and a lot of the complex 
complexity is unnecessary. So I, I kind of initially I thought that this whole clash of cultures was going to be Tesla or a grinder organization. They just eat up people and spit them out. And in order to survive that environment and by grinders, I think like a wood chipper, you put things in and then they just chew you up and spit you out in little bits. So you have to be quite as a person resilient to survive that organization, whereas Twitter pre-Elon Musk would have been like a snowflake heaven and perhaps trying not to be controversial because I'm sure there are, you know, it's not everyone who's like that at Twitter, but that's the impression I'm left with compared to what Elon has at Tesla, where people work really, really hard. They worked to achieve specific tangible goals and if and, and they have to meet them there's like no leeway you're not allowed to miss deadlines you're not given any uh, well limited room for failure and again maybe i'm wrong but it was interesting just listening to the conversation because honestly i thought elon talked to a lot of sense especially there was one interesting thing as an ex-accountant was he was talking about cost savings and that he's negotiating with various telcos globally where they've been apparently he's accusing them he said it the word fraud literally that they some of them were using fraud bots for two-factor authentication and literally creating bots so that they could charge twitter for each sms message and apparently outside of north america that generated 60 million dollars of expenses now he's saying not all of that is fraudulent but he reckons that about we're talking about 90 percent of that cost is actually fabricated so it's interesting if elon's picking these things up being there just a few months you just wonder what happened before elon was it just accepted i think though you have to take a lot of what he says with a pinch of salt when you look at his his uh, past record with them and, and constantly changing or if you don't like what he said today just wait until tomorrow he can say something different but um from a cultural point of view though you know it, it is like you said tesla has this uh, there's no creativity in tesla it, you know the top top people the designers of the cars you can say they're creative and that but the bulk of the people who walk there are not creatives with twitter it was the opposite i'm sure they walked very very hard in their in their own thing but it was very creative trying to you know typical silicon valley type of programming the likes of meta and uh, alphabet and the rest of them would be similar there'd be a lot more higher proportion of creative talents there and tesla musk is not interested in them being creative do what he says not come up with something themselves and you're seeing the, the cultural problem he himself fired half the staff but there didn't really seem to be any it was almost like they, maybe in the background they did some selective selection but it seemed almost to be arbitrary you know just half the staff went and that was it so he probably got rid of um, and the fact that he had to hire some back then means he did it was kind of like that that he, he got rid of people he needed and then a, a lot of who was left seemed to be you know, a large proportion of them seem to have just decided they're going. And anyway, that they're not going to be walking under the new, they're, they're not walking themselves to the bone and, and having their creativity limited by the Tesla style of, of Musk. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's a terrible takeover, regardless of whether you can make a business out of it or not, the, the cultural clash. And I think that's down on Musk because he should have known long before he took over what the culture was like on Twitter. And yes, if he felt he needed to change that culture, then fine. But you don't change a culture like that with a sledgehammer. You need to ease into it. You need to, and you need to have a, a, a game plan. He hasn't announced the game plan. What, what culture does he want in Twitter? The Tesla culture won't walk on Twitter if he wants to 
continue to be creative and, and if he's going to just basically use Twitter for what it is so I think he's, he's looking to try and copy the Chinese version I, I can't remember the name of it that's a, a single app no TikTok. not TikTok, the, the big one in China that does everything they take the payments they, they, they're they the Chinese Twitter the Chinese Facebook the Chinese payments thing it, it's basically every phone in China has it I've forgotten the name of it it'll come to me eventually Weibo yeah that's the one yeah. and that seemed to be what he, he was saying any deal with Twitter but you know we're different and by we I mean the Western world um, generally, like the US will obviously be the biggest thing, but over here, Ireland, the UK, Europe, we're a different world to China. You know, a, a single app won't be used by everybody to do everything. Yeah, here we, we kind of seem to have this part decided world. We like this app does this, Twitter does one thing, and that's it. They use a different app for, for payments, they'll use a different app for blogs, they'll use a different app for, for purchases, you know, all the rest of it. And um, I think they use several apps, they won't use one. They'll use several for each of those things. So I, I'm not sure whether his uh, ideas for Twitter are really going to work. But if there is ideas, he needed to keep in certain people. He needed to, to and the, the culture of Twitter was more likely to achieve that for him than the culture of Tesla because he needs some creatives. He needs to give them freedom and he needs to make their jobs, you know, a nice place to come. All of which he seems to have undone in the space of a couple of months. Well, actually, in the space of a couple of weeks because, well, it's a few months ago now, a couple of months ago now, it's uh, it all happened in the first week or two. He basically destroyed the culture <laughs> almost immediately. You know, I would hold that up as a classic example of what not to do in a merger and acquisition. Even if you have to change the culture, you don't do it that way. You, you have to try and be more gradual about it. Yeah, especially when your reputation is everything you have in a business and you are basically, you're wrecking livelihoods, you're wrecking uh, people's careers in theory, or at least massively disrupting them. Now, I think Twitter probably, you could argue, had to be right-sized, but there's ways of going about it rather than kicking people out and just organizing mass layoffs by upsetting people and making it untenable. I mean, there's laws in Europe, yeah. For a start, though, you'd be a bit more selective of who you're letting go. You'd let go half the people, fine. Let go the half of the people that you don't need. Or, well, you probably need half, you know, some of them you're going to need. But it seemed to be random, especially considering that about a week later, you had to start hiring them back, some of them back. But also, you you kind of, like, you know, he, he can say all he wants, though, it was hemorrhaging money it was this that and the other then you kind of have to query his business acumen why did you buy a company that was hemorrhaging all this money if you did not have the finances to sustain it for at least 12 months you know um, if, if it's hemorrhaging all this was going to be gone in four months then why didn't you wait four months until it was bankrupt and then come in and buy it at a knockdown price and all the people would probably be gone you wouldn't have to pay out all the redundancies and all that you know and, and you'd get it so you know again he, he can say all these things if they're correct you question his business acumen for buying it you know just because somebody is a billionaire doesn't mean they were a genius it just means they were lucky there are lots of geniuses who are broke but the, the cultures just don't match which makes it a much harder job I'm not saying it'll be a failure you know he, he may turn it around but it'll be a very different Twitter I think this time next year if it's still around it'll be very different if Musk is still in charge at this stage I don't think he has any choice but to stay in charge because you kind of wonder pay was 43 billion how much is it worth now it, it's not worth a fraction of that who's going who's who'd even pay him 10 billion for it now which wouldn't even be enough to pay off the loans that he took out to, to get it so it's yeah it's, it's, it's a tough one and it, it's an extreme example but that is what all businesses need to do don't just look at the business side of it look at the culture and are you going to be able to make this mesh you know especially if it's I mean this is only one person 
completely changing the culture of a company. But if it's two companies coming in, you know, you, you could say, well, Musk could have changed his culture, one person, to match Twitter and then made some tweaks and changes to improve the, the business model of Twitter. But when you're talking two large companies coming together, you know, it's not just one person then. It's 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 thousands of people in one company, thousands of people on another company. If they've got completely different cultures, that's a much... You, you can't, as Musk has proven, you can't just force thousands of people to change their culture overnight. That means you're going to either have to keep the two companies running separately for a large period of time as you merge the cultures gradually or pick two company, pick another company that already has a very similar culture to yours. Then it should be a much smoother work rate. And, you, you know, as, as we kind of said at the start, the, the culture is seems to be after they've made the decision uh, the business decision to acquire or merge then they look at the culture whereas they should be looking at the culture almost forced yeah and i don't think there was any strategy in it if you normally when you look at a strategy as you said earlier there's some form of synergy that any any merger or acquisition you're looking for synergies right Mm. whether it's similar businesses that you're consolidating related services i don't see any link between a car manufacturer and a social media platform you've got two different customer bases you're serving two different markets one is b2c and the other one is more or less b2b yeah you have individuals in twitter who are creating content on the platform but ultimately it's marketing you want engaged people in the twitter community who you can put ads in front of and that's where you get your revenue so that's your business model i guess in terms of culture and perhaps moving away from this elon musk twitter kind of case study which we're not really close to admittedly apart from following it on the news with a little bit of interest in my personal experience when two groups of people who have organically developed into natural teams then suddenly get put in together then you see kind of tribalism at play and i imagine it's very similar i mean humans haven't changed at least biologically when two tribes merge there's going to be coalitions there's going to be certain alliances created and this com- probably comes back to the old tech theory of Tutman's forming, storming, norming and performing type that every organization when they're disrupted, they go through these stages before they can actually start being productive and collaborative. But in my experience, you find that ideally things that can that can smooth the process. You always start with respecting someone's someone else's culture, even if you don't understand it. You're not you're not fighting it at the beginning. You just let it be. Um, and this was my first experience of a takeover where I was working for an acquired company, and the actual acquired company came from Central Europe. What they did was they, in order to have the right data, they implemented their system, replaced our old outdated system with a new one. It was SAP, which at the time was the gold standard of industrial ERP, but they didn't configure it to their specifications. They actually configured it to work like our old system but with additional functionality, extra reporting, self-reconciliation. There was automation where it needed to be, and that helped a lot. Plus, there was a lot of training, a lot of education on both sides, and a lot of open dialogue. 
which I thought was great. And in terms of that system implementation, it was the smoothest I've ever had. And it was also manned by very strong technical ERP people. That had, and actually, there was a lot of nerves about this system in, system implementation. But the team that they had was almost like a well-paid SWAT team. But they went in within three months, they'd actually set up the system and it was running like clockwork. Other system implementations, I went through uh, one where we took over. I was working for, a, and I've mentioned it before, a company that was financed by private equity doing a market consolidation. So growth through acquisition. And the key thing was really, it was almost like a hit and run. You go in, you'd migrate the customer database across to your system. Customers and suppliers, I might add, you'd eliminate the duplicates and you'd you basically, you'd eliminate also the administrative office. So all the admin, the accounting, the credit control, the HR, the back office, you just bring in a couple of extra heads in your team and you'd sack, say, about 10 to 15 in the acquired company. So it's pretty much like a, a quick hit and run. The tricky piece was, so there was no clash in terms of back office, but the trick was the sales staff. So you had various, because it was national company, you had area managers, and that's when it became a turf war at the sales and marketing and operations level. I literally had one situation where a couple of the more senior sales directors or area directors would be competing for sales performance, and invariably one would would disappear. But funnily enough, when they disappear, you lose a portion of your customers because they take them with them and then they bring them along to their competitors. So that that's kind of the um as kind of the say, should we say, collateral damage that came with mergers and acquisitions. The culture we had was not very, should we say, people centered. And there was one organization where the culture was more people centered. But yeah, it was the operations director from the company we acquired versus the CEO who was driving the company I was working for. And I just happened to be lucky enough. Well, if you call it lucky to be in the acquiring company, although I think at that time, the jobs market was healthy anyway. And it was more a case of the people were paid off very generously to leave. And they probably found jobs quite quickly, which is the other thing you've always got that option. If it's if it becomes impossible to work, and you don't see any future, why would you wait around? I, I walked a long time ago, now at this stage, but um, I, I wasn't involved in the mergers and acquisitions. I was, you know, the, the finance management accountant at the time, but they were going on a huge growth. They, they've grown hugely from them. And I was right at the beginning of just when they were starting. So it's my first experience putting in ERP systems and stuff like that to, yeah. to get ready for it. And they would actually be somebody I would hold out as the great example of successful mergers and acquisitions. Uh, they did a, a lot of organic growth, but they were also acquiring other companies, usually smaller, but not necessarily that much smaller. They never had to let anyone go from the acquired company because they were buying, they, they were selecting them for specific role business purposes, new markets, new new services in the IT services industry. But they also how they how they selected the companies was was very good. They'd they'd initially they'd select companies they knew of and they they'd select companies that they knew of that their customers had spoken highly of. Mm. So perhaps the company they're acquiring wouldn't be quite a competitor to them, but would be in the same space. So some of their customers may have used them for the services they did and spoke highly of them. The company that 
I worked for at the time in question had they had their core values effectively. They they had the values and, and they they spelled them out and they had them everywhere. And when they kind of came across a another company in the same industry that had similar values to them and were getting good recommendations from clients, from customers, then they'd pay a bit more attention to them and then they'd, they'd make a decision. Does it make a business sense to to, mer- to to acquire this company? So they kind of almost done the reverse of what normally gets done. Normally it's, does it make a good business decision to acquire this company? Okay, now we'd have to just try and figure out some way to get the culture still on. They did it the other way. Hang on, this, co- this company seems to align with us culturally. Does it align with us in where we want to expand yes it does okay now let's go and let's have a look at their finances are they doing well do they bring new customers to us can we upsell our products to those customers are they in a different market they bought a, they, they actually didn't buy a company in the uk they bought the assets from nordic company that was pulling out of the uk and so effectively the people in the uk what they ended up being was one day they were employed by the nordic company and then the next day they were employed by us and again that worked out really handy because we were only buying the it people, the staff, all the admin, all the finances, they belonged to the Nordic company, which meant that we didn't have to let anybody go there because we took over that in, in Ireland. Um, it was just switching head offices, really. Effectively, yeah. But um, but the culture was perfect. The, the people in the UK were the perfect match for the people in Ireland that, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, the the, what's it, the the storming, forming, norming and performing. Top, Tottenham model. Yeah. yeah. That that works if everybody is kind of on the same page. It, it'll it'll you know there there be flux, yeah. but they'll get together. But if people are completely opposed to each other culturally, they'll ne- the storming will never stop. They'll never get to the forming part because they just can't get along. So that that worked brilliantly. And and I have to say now, um, that company is still growing. Uh, you know, and it's made some major acquisitions uh, um, recently, and it's been very successful. Where, but that would now it's a long time since I was part of it, so I don't know if they still do the same but up until i left there they they never failed with an acquisition it always paid off because the the first and foremost thing was culture and they never had to let a load of people go they weren't buying it to fire a load of people and to strip the assets or that they were buying it because because it's it services so it was um to get the client base the market and the skill set they, they you know it was the people that was what they were buying the, the, the people and even where the then they started they bought um another company over there in the uk that did have a finance um, department team and that, but they kept that whole finance team and they kind of set that finance team up to be the UK finance team rather than trying to do everything in, in Ireland. Um, they reported into Ireland, but it was kind of like... Um, like some sort of matrix reporting line. Yeah, they, they were effectively going to have to... Um, if, if, they, if they had a fired everybody in the UK, they'd have had to hire almost as many people in Ireland to take over doing all the things. So they just... You know, that was how the, the finance team, the admin team expanded by buying the people and keeping them in the, you know, in the UK. Because there wasn't like the UK companies where had way too many people. They had enough people to get the job done and they were probably a little understaffed. So then when they merged with us, it meant we could, um, you know, there was enough staff to do the work. Yeah, we didn't have to let people go, but we also didn't have to hire more people either that, that we were able to just to do it. But again, that was led by Culture Horse. Yeah. Did they... Did, did they did their customers, did their clients, you know, did they get good reviews? Were these companies good? So, they, they, you know, it was a good, good um, match there because the company I worked for prided itself on having very good, you know, referrals, getting good customer reviews. So that was the first thing that drew their attention. Then they'd have a look to see what's the culture like there? What, what are the values of this company? Do they match with ours? They don't have to be the exact same. They'll never be the exact same, but are they close enough? 
Um, and then, okay, let's have a look and see, does it make business sense to acquire this company because it, it matches us for the rest of it? Yeah, in spite of all the corporate HR virtue signaling, what you see a lot of the time is that, and I've, I, I left uh, that culture where you're in a market where, for whatever reason, company hasn't been able to keep pace with the market. So revenues tend to decline or they stay flat but then your cost base is rising. So you have to offset the increasing costs with savings elsewhere. And so um, invariably the cost that you can go for is people. So salaries, wages, and benefits. So you do targeted restructurings and they're always about letting people go. And every time I've seen it, it's like, if it's not done strategically, it's literally death by a thousand cuts where you get people who are who have been with the company years, maybe even decades, they leave the business, rightly or wrongly, they have a lot of institutional knowledge with them. It's it's how things get done within that organization without breaking the whole. And then that goes and it puts more pressure on the existing staff when it's not engineered in a way that avoids that or minimizes that risk and that's the thing though um it's very difficult if the cultures aren't aligned it's very difficult to be able to engineer it you know if 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 you merge acquire another company and the cultures are completely different the people in that other company especially the ones you just mentioned have been there for a long time who have all the the knowledge the in-depth knowledge in it they're used to their culture and if you're coming in with a completely different culture they're the first ones that are going to want to leave because they have the experience, they can go, they've got the seniority, they can go somewhere else and they'll take all that with you and you don't get the chance then. You can't um, strategically restructure because the people you wanted to keep are gone. But they've done it with, um, with a good culture, like you're coming in with a very similar culture to them, then you've bought yourself a bit more goodwill, a bit more leeway that you're not driving them out because your culture is so different. They're thinking, okay, I could live with this culture now, let me see how it's going to progress then you have a chance to strategically restructure the the business and get rid of the people that you can get rid of without damaging your business investment. Um, Uh, The world's too small to be be insensitive, shall we say. It will come back in terms of your reputation. And this is a thing, I think, um, because when they don't do um, an acquisition and a merger well, then it does impact the brand. Ultimately, it's the biggest thing is, you know, it's you'll, you'll see lost revenue, you'll see increasing costs ultimately because they will come back. People who, who have left the business have to be replaced eventually because they're ultimately needed to get things done. And if you don't replace the original people, it's going to take a bit of time to actually train them up to get to the standard that the people who left were bringing Sometimes it should also just kind of be the thing. It doesn't always mean that, you know, because there's a clash of cultures, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the cultures of the individual companies, um, just that they don't merge. So, you know, you, you could have that clash of cultures and it won't have any impact on the, um, the reputation of the business, but it'll still have a business impact. Uh, you know, now they, they haven't merged. I'm going to pick two completely different uh, things, obviously. Um, but for example, if Ryan um, and Virgin Atlantic were to merge or one acquire the other. Now, for the um, US people listening in the US who are Ryanair, 
it's an airline. It's it's, it's uh, I think it's Southwestern in the US. It's based on, isn't it? That that they um, did it. It's a it's a low cost, very no frills, basic um, airline. It's what I think it's the largest in Europe now. It's grown, and the CEO of it, Michael O'Leary, has often made um, you know there'd be things like the people who work there are not allowed to even charge up their phones in the office to save electricity. It's that kind of thing. Now, that was kind of a, an urban legend, a myth, and uh, Michael O'Leary admitted it in an interview once where he said, well, what makes for a better story? That makes for a good story to show how we cut costs, how we keep things cheap. Birds in Atlantic being the polar opposite. It's um, very expensive, very luxurious. Um, was it the, the Hilton or something hotel? That was what he he did his thing. It wasn't other airlines that he, he matched up against. It was the the luxury of a hotel chain of a very luxurious hotel chain that he um tried to, to you know match up against with 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 um with Virgin Atlantic. So if those two were to merge, it'd be most likely Ryanair buying Virgin Atlantic. There would be a complete clash of cultures there. You'd have pretty much everybody leaving Virgin Atlantic. It would not impact on Ryanair's um reputation at all because everybody knows Ryanair is cheap. It's not even cheap and cheerful anymore. It's just cheap and basic and that's it um get you where you want to go for a really low price um but it would it would make the merger a failure because they, they know nothing about you know virgin atlantic even if they wanted to start doing you know cross-atlantic flights virgin atlantic would not be the one that they should be looking to to buy to get into that market um but you can imagine the the uh you know the clash there of those two cultures, it would not end well from a business point of view, but there'd be no um, reputational damage really done uh, because everybody everybody on the outside looking in would be looking and thinking, we know exactly what the cultures of these two companies are. It's not going to end well. <laughs> and, and, and that's just the way it is. It actually probably damaged them if it worked out successfully because somebody would have happened to sell out, their, give up their culture to, to make it successful. So... <laughs> And maybe that's the answer if you find that you've not done your due diligence from a people perspective up front and then you find that actually at a team level, uh, operationally, this isn't working. But yeah, it's interesting coming back to your previous example where it was successful and done well. It was more about understanding what are you, what are you acquiring beyond the balance sheet assets, you know, not the tangibles, but what is the intrinsic IP? Yeah. And yeah, coming back to my example where, you know, it's not just institutional knowledge, it's also the industry know-how. You've got internal, like, organizational relationships, but also you have your market relationships. You have suppliers, even competitors that you talk to on a regular basis. And the most senior leaders seem to have that. And they understand how uh, fundamentally they have a rough idea what the competitors are doing in spite of the fact that uh, at the levels beneath them, there's all these securities controls. You go into certain companies, you're not allowed to bring your phone without permission because it has a camera. However, there is that, um, there is that understanding in certain industries that at least because it's so small, they do talk to each other and they do know what each other are thinking of doing, whether it's, oh, I'm releasing a new product, they might not go into the specifics about what makes it great or what they think will make it great, but they know they're going to be 
rolling out their new product in about a year's time or two years down the line. It's just in PD. It's being worked through. They're getting the tooling set up, new factory to build it, and all the suppliers are lined up with the long-term contracts, all the raw materials, staffing it up, et cetera, et cetera. These things take time. And, yeah, you you wouldn't know that unless you'd been with that organization over a period of time. And to let that just suddenly go because or you try and replace it with something else that you think is better, but it's unproven, you're taking a huge risk there. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, again, that's a, the, the business risk, which um, is all the harder if the cultures don't align because you've lost the people who could have made that risk lower. But then with risk comes opportunity. But then who, what type of people benefit from disruption in organizations? It's the overly political people who well, are working the angles. Even even that, if, um, if the cultures don't align, you're not going to be able to take. The only, the, if the cultures are, are that far out, the only way that you can make a success out of the business is to, to asset strip. That you're just getting rid of all the people and stripping the assets of the acquired com- company. That's the only way if the cultures are, are that badly out. Um, that then, it, yeah, you're you're then gambling on really bad accounting, like historic costs that's severely undervalued, say tangible assets, yeah. maybe buildings or land that on the books is worth a lot more, or you can do something with it. So, for example, if it's commercial property that you can convert to residential property with the right relationships in certain local counties, whatever. Yeah, but they, they you'll you'll rarely make money on that. You'll rarely be a success. I kind of think if you're if you're going to acquire another company or merge another company, you have to make sure that the the cultures are are a decent starting point in order to keep all people either that or if they are very different cultures and the business case is overwhelmingly that you should do the merger acquisition, then you do it, but keep them as two separate entities for a longer period of time and and merge them more slowly because it's the culture that you can merge before you can merge the businesses. Um, and if you if you do that, you can make a success of it. But you need to be aware that if the cultures are very different, it's going to take a long time to get them together and have that built in to your plans. Don't don't think that you can uh you can merge these two companies in the space of a couple of months if they're very, very different. Um, culturally, you know, if the values are completely different, then you're going to have to you're going to have to get the values the same, and that will take time. You can't just change it overnight because the people who are in the other company, or your company, whichever one you decide you're going to change the values of, or even both of them, the people who are there came for the values that currently exist. If you start changing those values, then the people may not be the right match. You don't want that to happen too quickly. You you, you need those people, so you need to do it gradually. Whereas if the cultures are very similar, the values are very similar, well, that means the people are a good match. The, the people are there for those values, for, for that culture. They're a good match with people who are in your company. Um, and therefore, where it makes sense, those people can come together and will have a bit more common ground to start it. Might not work out, but you have a better chance of it working out. And in that situation, you lower the risk and you increase your, your um, likelihood of being able to take opportunities when they come because all the people are, are on the same page, effectively. That nobody hates being there because things have changed. Yeah, it's definitely something that you'd ha- I, I personally would have as a must-have item on a due diligence checklist pre-acquisition of any, any potential target company. And then within your 
checklist, another checklist for that cultural element. What would you have, I guess, flexibility, uh, alignment in terms of values? What are the core defining values of the culture? I guess diversity, um, should we say adoption of new technology, how, how digitally savvy you are? language maybe even geographical location that could be that that's always a huge one right i was just about to say that that you know we're talking culture and we've been more specific on business culture the core values type of thing but also the geographic culture you know if if, if you're going across borders um between ireland and the uk you'd um we're pretty much the same from a cultural point of view business-wise so that that you'd expect the people will be the same but then if you go to the US, there's slightly different, you know, culture there, um, you know, from Europe to the US, just, just um, now, but, but usually those type of businesses do work out okay, we're not that different. But then if you go to somewhere else, if you go, you're setting up in India and in China, they have very different cultures, different cultures there. So if you're merging with a business that's there, um, that could be very difficult, you know, even if the businesses on the face of it look like they have good, the same values and that just the way the people think, the way they operate, the way they, they, they go, the hierarchies, for example, you know, that, you know, here in Europe, um, it's a more flat hierarchy, but whereas in some other countries, hierarchies are very vertical and cannot be changed. Um, so that has to be all taken into account as well. Completely agree. And it's funny you mentioned that. I had uh, two bosses, two direct, three direct managers from mainland Europe, and all three of them were from different countries and different ways of dealing with their employees and just communication. And that proved very challenging in terms of how you relate to people and especially your manager, because you want to craft that relationship because it's good for not just your future career, but also just making working easier so you get more done. And uh, my one of my worst bosses, I won't say which country they were from, but they know who they are because <laughs> I handed in my resignation. <laughs> um, well, not resignation, my interest for uh, separation, a separation program. And uh, they were so difficult for me to work with um, and they probably found me difficult and it wasn't anything I necessarily did but I felt every performance review I was scored very low and it was just because my personality grated on that manager and by the same token their personality grated on me and it's a shame because um, there's this tool called GlobeSmart which does analyze multicultural communication, a, um, an analysis done between my personality versus their person um, or their country's personality, and it showed the different divergent paths. I was hoping to pull it out. Let me just see. I, re- I, I remember reading as well. I can never remember the name of the, the research. It was, it was a multinational company. It was internal research initially. And that's what he came up with was um, different nationalities had different um, leadership styles of what was expected. Um, so, you know, some countries, um, the you know, Western Europe especially, um, employees expect 
to be listened to, to be almost the equal of their manager, to, to have a say in things, and vice versa. The managers expect that of the employees. There are other countries um, where they found the hierarchy had to be maintained, that a, a manager wouldn't ask an employee for their opinion on something because that wasn't the job. That was the manager's job to make the decision, not the employee's job to give them feedback. And in those countries, that was expected by the employees as well, that they seen their manager as being a very weak and poor manager if they asked for feedback or for opinion. Um, so you can imagine if you've got two companies that are merging and they're, they're coming from those two different um, geographic cultures, national cultures, uh, it's just not going to work out if they don't realise you know, that they are going to have to keep two, you know, even if it's not two separate entities, they're going to have to keep two separate um, management structures that bringing somebody from one area onto the team of of the other area, that person is going to have to know, you know, their expectations have changed. Either now suddenly they're going to be expected to give feedback and to, to give their opinions, or now they're going to have to bite their tongues and stay quiet that, you know, just accept it. Um it, it, that, those situations, I suppose, are very difficult. That even if the core values of the businesses walk out, it's the cultures of the the individuals of the countries that they're from will be very different. Um, I suppose you're in an all-win situation there. You just have to to uh, accept it and and try to keep the two the two areas as separate as possible because um, it's probably never going to work for a complete merger. Well, it all depends as well, because even with, um, say, the tool I was using, they did emphasize that shows how they didn't emphasize that no country is better or worse than another country. It's no, just different. It's just it's different. different. Yeah, that's different. it. It's not, it's not one way works better than you. For certain things, some ways will work better than others. Um, but generally speaking, they're just different, you know, um, Sometimes the more collaborative approach of, of, of will work better than the, the more strict hierarchical approach. But then there are times where you do need the manager to just make a decision and get on with it that you can't um, keep asking for feedback and, and um, others' opinions. They need to just get on with it. So, you know, different situations will call for different things. And then, you know, whichever country's culture airs more towards one than the other, you know, in our opinion, our way is best than their way is, is is the the weaker one and that can be said by everybody involved you know we can say it from the western europe type of thing about somebody else but then they're saying it about us as well that airway is the weaker um theirs is, is the better for for strong leadership and things like that so you know again you don't think of the cultures it's the same when i was talking earlier with the business cultures with the core values it's not that one is wrong and, and the other is right it's just that they're different and you need to take those differences into you know consideration because ultimately you need to get those differences leveled out and bring people together um, away from those differences. And if you haven't really planned that through from the beginning, it's it's going to be very difficult to to do it when you know as Elon Musk has found out on on his one, it's a it's too late after you've bought the company to try and force everybody around to your way of thinking. You need yeah. to have had that all planned out and how long it will take and how you're going to do it before you buy the company. I think there's a market for this. I mean, I'm just reading the notes. Um, and this is this is the um, the culture of my manager and comparing with my kind of personality traits and where it completely diverges. 
low context. Um, so they're very direct. They don't always understand nuance in meaning. So they're literally very literal. They tend to be very direct in their communication. Um, they tend to be overly formal, very task-oriented, somewhat reserved until they really know you well. Um, don't like people impeding on their personal space. They're used to open, more open spaces compared to other, so, other nationalities. So based on what you've said so far, I'm thinking Eastern European, Germany or further East. Uh, yeah, snap. Possibly, so, yeah. Germany, probably. I, I, I recall somebody saying that before, that um, from Germany onwards, the further east you go, the more direct they become with their, their conversation. Exactly. Where I was thinking Germany, when, when you said that, was the um, they're very reserved until they get to know you. Because I have a few friends that are German, and their sense of humour is absolutely identical to the Irish sense of humour. The difference between them is that the Irish will share their sense of humour with a complete stranger. Like you, you've never met them before. An Irish person will suddenly start slagging you. you, you know, whereas a German will not until they get to know you. Then they will slag you the, just as much as any Irish person ever could. But only if they know you, they won't do it to a stranger. Yeah, they'll think they're being attacked. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That they're, they're, yeah. The stranger starts doing it. What's happening? Well, if a friend starts doing it, they'll, they'll, they'll go, yeah, that... Um, but then, you know, the, the thing is with that, you, you kind of do have the situation where um, as long as you know that's the, the case, you can allow for it to a certain degree. Sometimes there's going to be individual situations that just won't match, but then you have to split them up. And yeah, and a uh, key point is you don't have to make it about the nationality as well. Um, no. Don't forget that there's always exceptions to every every individuals within any country. Yeah, some, it's a, it's some it's actually... Yeah, exactly. Some actually prefer cultures outside their own, the ones mm. they grew, they were brought up with. And um, yeah, it's I, I, I'll about... admit, I, I'm kind of um, almost more, I like the German culture. You know, yeah. when I get to know somebody, I will happily, you know, whereas when it's somebody you don't know, you're kind of, you know, you're trying to judge them. Um, so I'm I'm a little bit, you know, I wouldn't be quite as extreme as a German now, but I wouldn't be either a full Irish kind of cultural... You wouldn't be uncomfortable in that sort of environment. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, um, so yeah, you know, they're generalisations. You know, I don't think either of us are saying every... And even we're in companies where it's the company values and that, not everybody will match all those company values. Some people, some people, you know, some people on Twitter probably love what it has now become under Musk because that's what suited them and they were really uncomfortable under the Twitter way and now they love it under the, the Musk way. Um, but generally speaking, it won't happen. You know, that generally speaking, the people who work in a company will have something in common with the culture of the company that they're with. And if that if that company gets taken over by somebody else who completely changes the culture, it will alienate all the people who are there and it'll take away a lot of... Um, the acquiring company's um, time to strategically restructure, that they'll just be left with what they got. They, they have no choice in the matter because everybody left that they needed to stay. Well, yeah, it's, it's transformation by necessity. Mm. And, you know, if people yeah. don't like... Yeah, exactly. Oh, and, and that's exactly what Musk is at the moment. He's very reactive. He's changing... But he's in firefighting mode, to be fair yeah. to him. But, he's found himself in a situation where he's probably 
rightly or wrongly, he's jumped in at the deep end and now he's he's paddling that's, for his his but life. That's the thing that that's where it made a very bad um, purchase. You know, he shouldn't have. He frankly shouldn't have purchased Twitter until he'd done more research, so that he wouldn't be in firefighting reactive mode. That he'd be in a proactive, you know, able to think things through, take his time. So if it was bleeding money, um, bleeding resources, that he only had four months. To, to to do it well then you probably shouldn't have bought it. Yeah, but he'll come out stronger for it. Yeah. Either one way or another he'll learn. Well <laughs> if nothing else, due diligence, my friend. Due diligence. Due diligence exactly. But due diligence of cultures and values, not just of the business assets. Yeah. And due diligence is almost always tend to be of the, the business assets. And yeah. the culture is a, is a after after the purchase has been made, then suddenly somebody will start taking right. How do we get the cultures to to come yeah. together? Here? You can, no, that should have been your first question. <laughs> Let's face it, lawyers and accountants aren't really the most people people. No, and bankers, and that's that's that's, that's who, where it comes down to. Where, yeah, that's where, and they they're the ones who lead all the um, mergers and acquisitions. You know, it's it's yeah. consultancy firms, but they're bankers, they're accountants. They're lawyers. Uh, they're MBAs who are competing, who are looking mm-hmm. to be their A-type personalities. And they don't have to really care about the success of it. The success for them is that the merger went through because that's yeah. what they get paid. And then if there's problems with the, you know, the alliance. They're riding off into the sunset. They've, they, they've left. They've, you know? they've left or they'll come back for a huge more sums of money. To try and help you to, to give you some advice as to oh well you know you probably should have made sure that these cultures were more aligned at the, at the beginning and yeah that wasn't their job you asked us about the business assets now it's about culture so we have our HR advisors here we send them in to help you so it's like the gift that keeps on giving mm. <laughs> an incomplete um, shall we say engagement remit mm. and and that's always going to be the way you can't think of everything. And for those strategic consultants out there, you don't want to uh, kill the go- golden goose. No, that's true. Until it stops laying eggs. That's what I'm saying. But in fairness, you know, I, I think um, if you if you do get the, if you, if you are a consultant and you're giving any advice to somebody thinking of a merger and acquisition, even at small scales, you know, we've been kind of talking big scale, but they go on at small scales, mom and pop type stores, you know, yeah. um, small medium sized businesses all the time. It's still just as important there. Um, More you know, so because yeah. of nepotism. You, you, yeah. you get you talk about subjectivity. When you've got family on the line, it's very hard to be objective. And mm-hmm. it might be even harder if you're a manager in one of these mom and pop shops. Say it's just grown. And then suddenly they're trying to groom their, their, their second generation offspring to take over the reins because that's what they want. But the manager's getting in the way, rightly or wrongly. Um, and maybe it's because the the children don't really want to do it, but they don't care. They're going to inherit it, and maybe they're not engaged. But again, sorry, that's another conversation. Yeah, uh, yeah but you know, even like the the one I was given the example I was given earlier, that was a you know, you now a large company, but it was only a small mid sized company at the time buying up other small companies. But you know, as I said, it it, it almost did culture first. Then it looked to see would it make a good business decision to buy, but only got to the far to the part of would it make a good business decision to buy after they were happy that no the culture will match. Now we'll consider buying it. It was never the case of oh we need to buy this for that thing. 
okay, now after we bought it, we'll culture match. No, that wasn't it. Was culture matches the values match? It was values more so rather than culture. They they were looking at values. Values match. Culture seems workable. Okay, now let's have a look and see. Does it make business sense to purchase? Yes, it does. Okay, let's go ahead and and negotiate. Um, and, th- and that was how they did it. That was that was small, you know, small businesses. And again, though you're dealing with people, sometimes they were dealing with businesses, but other times they were dealing with people. Um, they, you know, obviously they're always dealing with people. But what I mean by that is sometimes they were dealing with businesses where the shareholders, um, were you know business people only thinking of it as a business and you were negotiating that way. But a lot of the time, because of their values and the cultures and that and, and matching, um, they were dealing with people who this was their business. They were trying to buy their, it was like me trying to buy your company, but this is a company that you had founded, you had set up, you had grown. Yeah. And part of it, you know, they have all the various negotiations. Part of it was always kind of trying to get you shareholdings in the new larger company in part to keep you here because you know if you've grown your company up so far chances are you've got all the relationships that yeah. we need and that was it but um it does make it very buying nothing as well yeah. but yeah. it does make it difficult as well because you're trying to put a value then on something that you have um is yours it's, it's it's you effectively you know it's almost like this is this is your life's work we're putting a value on it and it might not be worth as much as you think it's um <laughs> And trying to negotiate with that, but again, it was always successful. Well, I would say it's always successful. Sometimes they withdrew from; they didn't always um, go through it. The thing, but any purchases that they went through it were successful at the time, and it was all founded on the shared values and identical or very similar culture. So even when they were dealing with an individual, they knew that individual they could talk to each other because they were coming from the same place, the same ideas. And and coming back to success, we're talking about not just cultural success, but it does tend to follow a positive ROI on that purchase. Yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing is guaranteed. Even a complete clash of cultures is not guaranteed to fail and a complete alignment with cultures is not guaranteed to succeed. But you're trending, you're... you're um, you're giving yourself probability. A, yeah, the probability is a lot higher of success if the cultures and the values are aligned pretty strongly from the beginning. Um, and that strategy at the end of the day, good strategy moves the odds of success in your favor. Exactly, exactly. And and given how difficult a merger and acquisition is at the best of times, you need it to be the best of times to give it the best chance of, of success. If you're coming in from a, you know, if straight away all your your, your staff and all the other company staff hate each other, and hate the idea of having to work together and think they're completely, you're not really giving yourself a good chance of success. You might make a bone, you know, you might make a go of it, yeah. but you're making it very difficult for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You're, uh, you're paddling against the current mm. at the end of the day. So, yeah, mm. I think, um, should we leave it at that? That's been yeah. a pretty good conversation, I guess. We've come to the conclusion that culture is important where it succeeds more often than not is if you're doing an acquisition and you've got a merger, it's good to take into account the people element and certainly organizational values. Do they align Mm. before you think about the commercial synergies? That's it. And if they don't align, then, and you still consider that it's such an important thing that has to go through. Just make sure that you've given yourself. Eventually, they have to be brought into alignment. 
But if they're if they're starting from a very different place to begin with, that means it's going to take you a couple of years to get them together. So just have that worked out in your financials, in your plans, in your strategy going forward. Yeah. Don't expect that everything's going to align in the first six months if they're so different to start with that you're going to have to take two, three years, then have that built in. Um, yeah. Unless you just want to do a scorched earth approach uh, and then, you know, that, saying commercially your asset stripping, don't yeah. give a damn. And, you know, it's going to make money regardless of what you do to the people. And then in which case, I hope you can sleep at night if you're that sort of person. <laughs> and that's that's not really then a merger or acquisition. That's just, uh, you know, an asset stripping, not the same thing. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, Thank you, John. Very entertaining conversation as always. And uh, listeners, thank you very much. This has been Business Breaks with your hosts, John Byrne and myself, Dante Healy. Thanks, John. Thank you, Dante. Pleasure as always. This podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business, IT and digital finance. Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, this show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations.